sun comes back when the first quail calls follow the dragon go for the old man is waiting for carry you to listening to Follow the Drinking Gourd, one of the original African-American spirituals very popular during this period where African-Americans were widely kept as slaves in America. Um, This song is especially interesting because it is largely considered to contain directions to help African-American slaves to escape to freedom using the Underground Railroad and various landmarks. Um, so you'll notice the follow the drinking gourd refrain refers to following the Little Dipper, the, you know, constellation. Um, multiple other signs like the dead tree or following the river all help escaped slaves to reach the north and therefore safety. Um, one of the reasons why I want to include this is because slavery and the slave trade is a major concern of Irving's and the devil and Tom Walker, but also because, to be perfectly honest, like, Without African-American music, American culture is really freaking boring. Um, Like, this is the foundation for virtually all 20th century music, starting from jazz, working up to rock and roll and pop, rap, hip-hop, you name it. It's all deriving from African-American cultural contributions. Like, it is not downplaying it. What's more, I just find it interesting that so much of American culture is rooted um, in this moment in history that, you know, Irving is trying to invent an American culture, trying to sort of like build an American mythology that will serve the test of time the way that, you know, the Germans have their folklore and their myth, um, as we'll talk about later. Um, And the fact of the matter is, American culture is rooted in slavery. Um, like, not to say that we should be proud of it, not by any extent of the imagination, but at the very least to ignore it is ridiculous. Um, and the story of slaves escaping to the North, the story of, you know, these songs that sort of capture this, this conflict, this radical injustice, um, this is our heritage. Possibly as much or more is anything to do with the revolution, with the, you know, quasi-heroic soldiers, the battles of, you know, the the East Coast, this is as much a part of who we are. Um, And not to, you know, try and co-opt this stuff, not by any extent of the imagination. Again, I'm not the person to to sort of claim authority on the subject, but, like, this is our myth. Um, This is as much foundational to our American identity as any myth or legend or folklore or story that we find in Europe. This is what our country is built on. It's ugly, it's gross, it's grotesque, and it's not our, you know, we should not be proud of it, but it is still us in a very real sense. 
So as a professor, I know it's my job to love each of the texts I teach equally. All the texts I teach in philosophy, the ones I teach in mythology, and the ones I teach here, all of them I'm supposed to respect and, and admire and, and teach fairly and, and all that stuff. But seriously, I love this story. Like, it's so good. Um, I have always had a soft spot for American romanticism, like ever since I was in high school and I was starting to read things like The Devil and Tom Walker for the first time. Um, and that has just grown over the decades at this point. Um, but seriously, like Irving is so quick with his writing here and his details are so keen and the story is like simultaneously creepy and like has this legend quality to it. It's just a lot of fun. Um, and I honestly think it's a nice sort of way to come back from the midterm. Which, P.S., if you haven't taken the midterm, get on that. Um, it will be due at the end of this week, which I believe is April 30th for you folks. Um, again, I'm recording these very well in advance. Like, it's February still on my end. It, like, it's snowing, and it's and Texas is frozen, and all of that has happened. So here it is from the past. But anyway, make sure that you get that midterm, and then we can talk about uh, The Devil and Tom Walker. Um, so as you'll notice, like we haven't talked about America at all at this point, largely because it wasn't really producing any cultural artifacts until after the, the revolution. Um, and we talked about the revolution a little bit and sort of like American neoclassicism there. That's all fine. Uh, but American romanticism is kind of a unique phenomenon. Um, we mentioned when we were talking about Goethe just a little bit, like, blink and you'll miss it. And we talked about how Romanticism inspired a lot of different authors to sort of reevaluate their cultural heritage, like to look at all their old myths and legends and, and stories and folk tales and stuff, to sort of dredge up the, the cultural detritus that had largely been considered beneath the notice of, you know, literature and highfalutin academic scholarship. Um, so, you know, like, up until then, the stories of Faust and Don Juan as stories had, in fact, been adopted in the Renaissance and sort of developed into this highfalutin elitist tradition in its own right. But in the 19th century, you've got guys like the Brothers Grimm sort of dredging up old German folk tales and folk stories and turning them into, you know a subject worth studying. Um, you've got Wagner turning the old Norse myths and legends into a grand series of operas. Um, you've got Beethoven taking the old German drinking song Ode to Joy and turning it into one of the greatest symphonies ever produced. Um, and you'll see the same thing happening all over the place, like collections of British fairy tales and of French fairy tales are also being put together. Um, a lot of the European nations that have a rich, deep folk culture are sort of, with the, with the advent of Romanticism, they're sort of reevaluating it and reprioritizing it. Um, but this is kind of strange in countries where there really isn't that sort of culture or whether or where it hasn't actually developed yet. Um, specifically in Russia, on the one hand, which is very much just coming into its own as a country, like thanks to Peter the Great, as we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks, um, because of Peter the Great and because of this sort of renewed effort to sort of join the Europeans and in, in their culture and industrialization, the Russians are starting to look at their heritage at this period and trying to sort of figure out how to address it, especially with writers like Pushkin and Gogol. Um, and the Russians at least have a long-standing folk tradition 
that just needs to sort of see the light of day. Their problem is they're inventing themselves as a European power. The Americans, on the other hand, you know, they're creating it from the ground up. Um, admittedly, there were the indigenous peoples, but, you know, we got rid of all their stories because we got rid of all of them. Good for us. Like, hooray for genocide. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more as we get deeper into Washington Irving's story, because he also touches on that. Um, but for the most part, the idea of an American myth or an American legend was kind of not a thing. There wasn't enough time for that to develop. Um, American culture was, you know, a hundred years old at most, and a lot of that was in a colonial period where, you know, there were disparate parts and it sort of futzed up with British and Dutch and French and German folk tales and mythology. Um, America was very much a raw land without a culture at this point. And Romanticism is the moment when American culture really started to develop. Um, to sort of set out for itself a unique identity, separate from the, the countries that had sort of created the colonies in the first place. And part of what American Romanticism turned out to do was sort of create a mythic culture for America. Um, you've got artists like Washington Irving or Nathaniel Hawthorne all writing these sort of quasi-tales, quasi-fables, quasi-myths to sort of round out the American experience. They're relentlessly American. Like, they're grounded in the American locale. They have American values at stake. Um, many of them are rooted in sort of the, the colonial and, uh, like, constitutional process. So you've got legends like Johnny Appleseed walking across America planting apple trees, or John Bunyan and his big blue ox cutting down trees just like those good American foresters of you know, the colonial period. And you've got stories like George Washington cutting down the cherry tree, which didn't happen, but, you know, he is one of our national heroes in the same way that, like, Romulus and Remus became mythic figures to the Romans. Um, that's... These myths, these stories, these legends sort of gravitated around these distinctly American people, distinctly American places, and distinctly American ideas. Um, and it stands to reason that Devil and Tom Walker is, at the end of the day, a Faust story. Um, it is a retelling of the bargain with the devil, but you'll notice there is no Faust, there is no Mephistopheles. Like, Tom Walker is radically different from the Faust of both Marlowe and uh, Goethe. He is radically different from the Dr. Faustus wandering around Germany from the Faust book. Um, that connection is pretty obvious like the the basic story structure is exactly the same um but now it's an american who is doing it an american who is falling under the will of the devil and the devil himself is relentlessly american in his own right as he will in fact say um america is sort of identifying itself using these old story techniques using these old story structures and this one in particular gets surprising track we'll see uh stephen vincent benet revisit um the devil and tom walker later on in the semester as we get closer to the end and as we reach the 20th century um but let's dig in here like enough preface enough talking about american romanticism as fascinating as it is Let's actually look, dig deep into this text and see what Irving is doing. Um, so first off, as I said, Tom Walker is a very different character from Faust. He is not some highfalutin intellectual. He is not some erudite scholar dissatisfied with the limits of scholarship as he has run into it at this point. Tom Walker is just a farmer, like an average American landowner. 
Um, so we see in the second paragraph, about the year 1727, just at the time when earthquakes were prevalent in New England and shook many tall sinners down upon their knees, there lived near this place a meager, miserly fellow of the name of Tom Walker. Now notice the dominant characteristic here is not, you know, he is eternally striving for greatness or he is, you know, one of the greatest scholars who ever lived. He is a miser. Um, he is a penny pincher. He is greedy and also he refuses to spend money. Um, the idea of a miser has kind of disappeared in our culture because riches have kind of transformed. But especially in the 19th century, the miser was kind of like this you know, this caricature in its own right, that kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge in, in uh, Christmas Carol, um, he wants all of the money and yet doesn't spend a dime. He, like, just holds onto it, hoards it like a dragon sitting on its giant pile of gold. Um, but notice that Tom Walker isn't the only miser in his family. He had a wife as miserly as himself. They were so miserly that they even conspired to cheat each other. Whatever the woman could lay hands on, she hid away. A hen could not cackle, but she was on the alert to secure the new laid egg. Her husband was continually prying about to detect her secret hordes, and many and fierce were the conflicts that took place about what ought to have been common property. So not only is Tom Walker a miser, not only is he greedy and selfish and sort of hoarding wealth without spending it, but his wife is the same way, to the point that they are hiding wealth from each other. That when a hen cackles in the hen house, the wife is out to get the egg before Tom Walker can get it, because apparently, you know, that's wealth, I guess, in this family. Um, notice, too, that the relationship between them is simultaneously horrible and comical. Like, Tom Walker, Washington Irving is emphasizing that this family is completely dysfunctional. Um, like, on this basic level. Like, even here where he stresses um, that, you know, they were constantly on... Or her husband is con continually prying about to detect her secret hordes, and many and fierce were the conflicts that took place about what ought to have been common property. Irving is stressing, you know, they're a family, husband and wife. They should own these things as a group. Um, everything that is owned by the husband is also owned by the wife, according to the logic of marriage, like for centuries at this point. And yet they're treating it as separate entities, like Tom Walker is hiding money from his wife, his wife is hiding stuff from Tom Walker. Um, notice too that they're just like stupidly mean to each other. Despite all of this selfishness, despite all of this greed, despite hoarding all of these stupid things like eggs, you'll notice they lived in a forlorn-looking house that stood alone and had an air of starvation. A few straggling savin trees, emblems of sterility, grew near it. No smoke ever furled from its chimney, no traveler stopped at its door. A miserable horse, whose ribs were as articulate as the bars of a gridiron, stalked about a field where a thin carpet of moss, scarcely covering the ragged beds of pudding stone, tantalized and balked his hunger. And sometimes he would lean his head, head over the fence, looked piteously at the passerby, and seemed to petition deliverance from this land of famine. The whole farm is just wretched, like barely any grass grows. It's all just bare rock and the horse is just like walking around looking for any grass to eat. The horse's bones, like its ribs, stick out like gridirons, like they're the bars of a fence, like you can see them that clearly. Um, the house is miserable and small and ramshackle, run down. Um, 
the whole place has, as Irving says, an air of starvation. There's nothing to hoard. Like, as much as they are, you know, secretly playing these games, these sorts of, you know, hiding all of the wealth from one another, there's nothing to hide. Like, they don't have enough to make it worthwhile. They're just greedily holding on to just odds and ends, bits and bits and bobs, like stupid worthless stuff, as though it's, you know, priceless treasure. So we already see here that the fundamental thing that's going to drive Tom Walker into the hands of the devil is his greed, um, is his miserliness. Um, but also notice just how pointless it all is. Like Irving is stressing this. The wife is terrible, the husband is terrible, and they're pointlessly, hilariously terrible. Like they're just mean for no reason. It's silly um, as much as it's anything else. So notice the house and its in, in its inmates had altogether a bad name. Tom's wife was a tall termagant, fierce of temper, loud of tongue, and strong of arm. Her voice was often heard in wordy warfare with her husband, and his face sometimes showed signs that their conflicts were not confined to words. So notice Tom's getting beaten by his husband, or by his wife. Um, like, Tom's wife is apparently not just loud and argues with him frequently, but she'll also, like, just smack him around. Um, so, you know, this is another sort of common trope that you'll see in a lot of 18th and 19th century literature, especially among, like, peasant folk, like we're seeing here. Um, but when the woman of the house is dominating the place and, like, whipping her husband to the point of, like, literally beating him up, um, you can tell that, like, all of the, the values in this household, in this place, are just completely reversed, completely set upside down. Um, as much as, you know, you, you, we, we should not either laugh at spousal abuse or at like uh misogyny in the sense of like a wife being subservient to her husband the re the reversal here is meant to be funny like it's silly it's the fact that his wife is horrible is silly and the fact that he is also horrible is silly it's okay to laugh at these people because they're both so relentlessly terrible to each other um and irving will will take some joy in that over uh throughout the text but notice also how he expresses it um rather than saying that like she beats him he beats around the bush his face sometimes showed signs that their conflicts were not confined to words his face has bruises on it his face demonstrates that she's beating him um it's not meant to show like the violence of the situation it's meant to show the sort of end result but notice also the way that he talks about it from the traveler's perspective. No one ventured, however, to interfere between them. The lonely wayfarer shrunk within himself at the horrid clamor and clapper clawing, eyed the den of discord askance, and hurried on his way, rejoicing if a bachelor in his celibacy. They are so terrible to each other that bachelor passers-by, unmarried men walking by the t house, will thank God that they are, in fact, unmarried, because this is the most miserable marriage that was ever founded. Um, so here is our setup. Here is Tom Walker and his wife. Tom Walker, who is miserable and miserly, his wife, who is miserly and also loud and angry and beats him regularly. Um, they are a terrible family in it, living in a terrible household on a completely weather-beaten, miserable farm. They are just this nexus of awfulness in the midst of New England, and everybody leaves them alone because they're the worst. Um, 
Now, Tom Walker is the one who will ultimately get approached by the devil. He is on his way home one day, and he takes a shortcut, and Irving even mentions that, like, shortcuts are usually ill-advised. Um, and he stumbles across our devil person in this case, Old Scratch. Um, and as you should expect at this point, we're going to talk about him, because, again... The, the these devil characters usually give us some idea of what evil is like for the author who is writing these stories. Um, so notice that Tom Walker encounters the devil at this old Indian fort. And if you're feeling a little uncomfortable and like this is a little racist, yeah, that's, that's accurate. But notice too what the racism actually looks like in this case, because Irving is actually being fairly deft. Um, he is characterizing his racism in a very specific way. It's not all controlled, but it is largely controlled here. So notice here, uh, it says a couple paragraphs down from where we were reading earlier. It was late in the dusk of evening that Tom Walker reached the old fort, and he paused there for a while to rest himself. Anyone but he would have felt unwilling to linger in this lonely, melancholy place, for the common people had a bad opinion of it from the stories handed down from the time of the Indian Wars, when it was asserted that savages held incantations here and made sacrifices to the evil spirit. Tom Walker, however, was not a man to be troubled with any fears of the kind. Now notice... This line is not especially damning as far as Tom, Tom, Ir, Irving is concerned. He says that it is asserted that the savages held incantations here. And the fact that he calls them savages should definitely, you know, rile us up a little bit. That's uncomfortable. But that term he'll revisit. Um, the fact that they are making incantations and sacrifices, this idea that the Native Americans are, human, are conducting human sacrifice, that's less agreeable especially because he doesn't bother to couch it in the terms of like people thought they were doing human sacrifice a little later on um like in the next few paragraphs it is emphasized that in fact they did sacrifice white men to the devil which isn't great and irving should definitely think better of these people because there is like zero evidence that any native americans in new england ever sacrificed any humans uh to the spirits or otherwise um so that one that one is very much off color for sure um but i also want to stress exactly what the devil turns out to be and what the relationship between the devil and the indians actually are here so notice you know tom walker sits down he reposed himself for a for some time on the trunk of a fallen hemlock, listening to the boding cry of the tree road, and delving with his walking staff into a, mold, a mound of black mold at his feet. As he turned up the soil unconsciously, his staff struck against something hard. He raked it up out of the vegetable mound, and lo, a cloven skull with an Indian tomahawk buried deep in it lay before him. The rust on the weapon showed the time that had elapsed since the, this death blow had been given. It was a dreary memento of the fierce struggle that had taken place in this last foothold of the Indian warriors. Now, notice the war that had, been, that had taken place, Irving mentioned a couple paragraphs ago that this fort was thought to be used as a place of protection. Um, so a couple paragraphs ago, it literally says it had been one of the strongholds of the Indians during their wars with the first colonists. Here they had thrown up a kind of fort, which they had looked upon as almost impregnable and had used as a place of refuge for their squaws and children. The women and children were protected here. This was not necessarily a place of human sacrifice. This was a place of protection. 
And yet, it is also associated with this brutality, this violence. The implication that Irving is placing here is that there was a, a conflict, that the fort was destroyed. But who's doing the destruction is so critical. Yes, there is a battle between, you know, the supposed native savages and the white settlers. But notice, this was all defense on the part of the Native Americans. This was a massacre. Um, and Tom Walker is sitting in the middle of it, and he is admittedly, you know, looking at a skull where the skull has been caved in by a tomahawk, probably a white man's skull destroyed by an Indian's weapon. But it's still not necessarily like Native American aggression that's on display here. It is white aggression. It is a white massacre of Native Americans just trying to protect their women and children. That's the horror of the scene that's being portrayed here. And notice that he emphasizes that even farther. Um, so, as we'll see that as we go further. Um, so first we have Tom Walker kicks the skull. And, you know, I know that this was quite a while back, but this does seem to have quite a connection to the old, like, original version of the Don Juan legend where it's like the guy who kicks the skull and the skull talks to him and the skull invites him to dinner. Um, it's a bit of a reach, I suspect, but notice that the, the structure is roughly the same. He kicks the skull and immediately our antagonist, Old Scratch, shows up. Let that skull alone, said a gruff voice. Now look at the description, especially, because this one is tricky and Irving is very careful about it. So it says, Tom lifted up his eyes and beheld a great black man seated directly opposite him on the stump of a tree. He was exceedingly surprised, having neither seen nor heard anyone approach, and he was still more perplexed on observing, as well as the gathering gloom would permit, that the stranger was neither Negro nor Indian. It is true he was dressed in a rude half-Indian garb and had a red belt of or sash swathed around his body, but his face was neither black nor copper color, but swarthy and dingy and begrimed with soot, as if he had been accustomed to toil among fires and forges. He had a shock of coarse black hair that stuck out, that stood out from his head in all directions, and bore an axe on his shoulder. Notice the way that this description proceeds. Tom originally thinks that this guy is a black man. A great black man is the first description we have of Old Scratch. And it is, it is the, the phrase that will be used throughout the text. Old Scratch will frequently be called a black man. And Irving seems to be doing some more racism here. Like, here we are with the devil portrayed as a black man, just as all these, you know, white American settlers would think. Like, the devil, of course, would be black. But he isn't. That's the trick. See, notice this, that Irving stresses the stranger was neither Negro nor Indian. He's dressed as an Indian. He's wearing a belt or sash around his body as though he were an Indian. But his face is not the, the color or, or, or the character of either a black person or a Native American. He's a white dude. The devil has always been white, as far as Irving is concerned. The trick is, he is dressing up to sort of make people think that he is, in fact, black, Native American, or some other minority. Where white people think that black people are the devil, where white people think that natives are the devil, the devil is and has always been white, as far as Irving was concerned. 
it won't be it will not be very subtle uh irving was an abolitionist in his own right he is definitely responding to the racism of you know the other colonists the people that he lives with the white people that he lives with and he is actually talking about their racism here he is shining a light by emphasizing that the devil would be perceived to be black but is in fact a white dude just covered in soot as though he were working around fires and forges which you know the devil should be doing hanging out in fire is kind of what devils do that's a common misconception irving is in fact defending black people and native americans that he is insisting that the true evil is not found in their spheres but rather it was brought by white settlers um there is a little confusion there like a little further further down so we get another description a little while later um when you know old scratch decides to describe himself like tom says pray who are you if i may be so bold and he responds oh i go by various names i'm the wild huntsman in some countries the black miner in others in this neighborhood i am known by the name of the black woodsman i am he to whom the red men devoted this spot and now and then roasted a white man by way of sweet smelling sacrifice since the red men have been exterminated by you white savages i amuse myself by presiding at the persecutions of quakers and anabaptists i am the great patron and prompter of slave dealers and the grand master of the salem witches now there's a lot going on here so let's take it line by line the first couple of sentences are just devoted to names, like random, typical, devilly names. Devil names as he might have been called in New England, as he might have been called elsewhere. You know, the Wild Huntsman, the Black Miner, the Black Woodsman, whatever. Um, and notice that he does use the word black here. Like black as in darkness, black as in evil. Not necessarily black as in a racist determination. Um, again, he is not a black person in the sense of, you know, an African-American. He is black in the sense that he is black-hearted, in the sense that he is evil. Um, Irving has made a very careful qualification there. He is drawing a major distinction between those two understandings. Now, the next sen sentence is probably the most racist that irving is going to get in this in this whole story i am he to whom the red men devoted the spot and now and then roasted a white man by way of sweet smelling sacrifice this does not have the the sort of hedging that that existed in the last time where it's like people think that they were doing human sacrifice the devil presumably would know um so here it's impossible not to see that irving is being rather thoroughly insensitive to the actual you know culture of native americans in new england who did not do this sort of thing or at least not often and certainly not like as a sort of ritualistic performance to the devil so this one's just flat out wrong like let me stress that right here irving is being racist here as much as i'm going to apologize for his racism elsewhere i can't at this point um now, since the red men have been exterminated by you white savages, notice that he immediately flips it around, though. Like, as much as he stresses that, you know, Native Americans have been conducting human sacrifice to the devil, which is not true, he then immediately downplays that by stressing that he, the Native Americans have been exterminated by white savages. The word has been flipped here. Where it used to be referred to, like 
where it says that the savages held incantations here earlier on in the passage, where the colonists all just universally believed that that had been happening, that the Native Americans were savages, the devil himself flips the script. The red men are not savages, as he puts it. Instead, it's the whites who are savages, the whites who exterminated the natives as savages. Now, Irving seems to put them on fairly even footing. Like, as much as, you know, he does seem to think that the Native Americans were engaged in some pretty horrific practices, he is pointing out here that the white people were engaged in every bit as horrific practices. At the very least, we're in like a heart of darkness racial and is it racist question here. Like, he, he is equating the two. He is making the two similar, even if they... He is radically, like, overemphasizing the crimes of the people that he is comparing them to. Notice, too, that he doesn't have anything about like this about black people, though. Again, Irving's an abolitionist. He has his own agenda here. So instead, since the natives have been exterminated by the white savages, the devil says, I amuse myself by presiding at the persecutions of Quakers and Anabaptists. Quakers and Anabaptists were both minority religious groups in, you know, early America, like both colonial 18th century America and early 19th century America, as we see here. The Quakers especially were primarily settled in Pennsylvania, um, like that was very much their colony for the longest time. The Quakers were famous because they, they did these dances during their... Um, during their church services on Sundays, like the they would preach and they would sing and they would do this dance, which was thought of as quaking, hence Quakers. Um, the Anabaptists are a little more vague. Both are sort of definitely minority groups of Puritan adjacent, um, like uh, denominate or Christian denominations coming over from England, fleeing the religious persecution of the 17th and 18th century. Um, but the Quakers and Anabaptists especially were only more persecuted by the Puritans when they reached American shores. And Irving is sympathetic to them here. Notice that, again, it's the devil who persecutes Quakers and Anabaptists. The devil only does evil things. Remember, any time that, that Irving puts stuff in the devil's mouth, you can bet that that is being characterized as evil. So the fact that the devil is persecuting Quakers and Anabaptists would indicate that persecuting Quakers and Anabaptists is wrong. That it is something that only evil or greedy puritans in fact do as sympathetic as irving may be to puritans otherwise then he gives us our, his second description i am the great patron and prompter of slave dealers notice that irving puts the slave trade directly into the devil's hands like this is not the only time he's going to mention it either like it comes up something like three times over the course of this story the devil is the great patron the great financier the great prompter of slave dealers all of the slave trade operates under the devil's auspices as far as irving is concerned and again we have this sort of reversal of our usual assumptions about race here where all of these white people would assume that black people are the devil, that they need to be quashed, that they need to be kept down, Irving is stressing, no, the fact that they're here is our devil's work. It is white devilry that has brought 
black people here in the first place, they are not responsible for the evil that we have perpetrated on them. Again, he is emphasizing that they are at the that black people, black slaves especially, are at the best, at the very worst, blameless, and at the very best, radically wronged. Um, now, the last bit that he mentions, he is the great master of the Salem witches. This is ambiguous. The Salem witch trials were a good 150 years old at this point, um, and it seems that Irving is kind of taking it at face value, that he is not questioning the fact that there were witches at Salem, which probably he should be doing at this point. Like Nathaniel Hawthorne, who is also writing American romantic stories, um, he was actually a descendant of the Judge Hathorne um, who presided at Salem, who in fact condemned all those people to death. And Hawthorne was so disgusted by this um, that he changed his name. That's why he's Hawthorne, not Hathorne. He threw the W in to distance himself from his forebears. Um, so it's clearly common knowledge that the Salem witch trials were bogus. Um, in case you're not familiar, I imagine you went over them in high school, but the Salem witch trials were basically, like, th there was this whole panic in Salem, uh, Massachusetts, where a bunch of people thought that there was witchcraft going around, like people had come down sick and they were like, oh, it was a witch. And there were all these young girls who apparently had good fun accusing people of being witches because, you know, girls. Um, but what's worse is the leadership of the community at the time, like the head honchos, the mayor and the, the town judge and the town like clergy, they all saw this as an opportunity to do some land grabbing from some pretty, you know, disliked members of the community. So when those disliked members of the community conveniently got accused of being witches, they were more than happy to hang them and take their stuff. The whole thing is a giant ugly mess. And it's hard to say here whether Irving is speaking about it ironically or literally. Whether Irving thinks that the Salem witches were real and that the devil was in fact running them, or if he's in fact noting that the devil was, you know, complicit in the madness and the witch hunt, as we call it, that Salem turned out to be. Um, it's kind of hard to make that argument here, um, but we'll continue and, and see where we get uh, from here. Um, now, after this grand speech, after the devil explains who he is to Tom, you'll notice that Tom doesn't freak out about it, and Irving also remarks upon this. Um, such was the opening of this interview, he says, according to the old story, though it has almost too familiar an air to be credited. Notice that Irving is leaning on the Faust tradition at this point. He sees that this is already a well-worn story, that all the plot beats are very familiar. Again, this story has been told dozens of times at this point. Like, the fact that we only looked at Marlowe on the one hand and Goethe on the other should not disguise the fact that, like, this is a story that many different writers have approached, many playwrights have produced, many opera writers have have sort of put together as well as short stories and novels and other sort of interpretations and adaptations across the board. Everyone knows this story at this point. So Irving doesn't feel terribly bothered to include a lot of the details. Like you'll notice there's no bargain scene in this telling of the story. Like at no point do we get to see the terms struck between Tom Walker and the devil. We assume that they took place. 
Um, Irving doesn't feel the need to dramatize it because, again, it's so familiar. We all know the deal. We all know that ultimately the devil will claim Tom Walker's soul in favor for whatever boon he offers to Tom Walker. Um, this is all very familiar. But he goes on, one would think that to meet with any such with such a singular personage in this wild, lonely place would have shaken any man's nerves, but Tom was a hard-minded fellow, not easily daunted, and he had lived so long with a termagant wife that he did not even fear the devil. Notice the joke here. Like, Tom has been living with his horrible wife so long that he no longer even fears the devil. Like, she is as bad or worse than the devil, and we'll even see them fight at one point. Like, Irving stresses the awfulness of his wife by showing how Tom is not terribly concerned about having a conversation with Old Scratch, the Black Woodsman, the devil himself. Um, so instead, the devil makes the very rough offer that we see here. Um, the black man told him of great sums of money which had been buried by Kid the Pirate under the oak trees on the high ridge not far from the morass. All these were under his command and protected by his power so that none could find them but such as propitiated his favor. These he offered to place within Tom Walker's reach, having conceived an especial kindness for him, but they were to be had only on certain conditions. What these conditions were may easily be surmised. Again, Irving doesn't feel obligated to tell us all the details of the bargain, though Tom never disclosed them publicly. That must have been very hard, for he required time to think of them, and he was not a man to stick at trifles where money was in view. When they had reached the edge of the swamp, the stranger paused. What proof have I that all you have been telling me is true, said Tom, and there is my signature, said the black man, pressing the finger on Tom's forehead. And Tom finds that the fingerprint is like burnt into his forehead and nothing can get rid of it. Um, notice too, though, that the devil has also been engaged in his own activities during this process. Like, we skipped over this part to get to the description of, the self-description of the devil, but, um, originally Tom accuses, uh, the devil to, of being on, you know, Deacon Peabody's territory, on being on somebody else's land. So he says, your grounds, says Tom with a sneer, no more your grounds than mine, they belong to Deacon Peabody. And... Old Scratch responds, Deacon Peabody, be damned, as I flatter myself he will be if he does not look more to his own sins and less to his neighbors. Look yonder and see how Deacon Peabody is faring. Notice, first off, that the devil claims this is my territory. He even says a little bit later that this is the right of prior claim. This woodland belonged to me long before one of your white-faced race put foot upon the soil. This was always the devil's land. He was here even before the white settlers arrived. As much as he is a white guy, as much as it is, you know, a white devil that we are dealing with, covered with soot, he still existed in this land long before. This land belongs to him by prior claim, he says. The devil is, in short, relentlessly American. Um, and it's worth noting that Irving says this. Like, as much as there's something weirdly patriotic about it. Like, the fact that there is this unique devil that belongs to America. That the devil can be so relentlessly American here. And notice that we have seen this sort of bits and pieces across the board like most of the people who have portrayed the devil as much as it has sort of been transcendent of nationality especially with guys like dante or milton you'll also notice that mephistopheles is frequently kind of especially german 
Um, the Faust stories that we've been reading portray Mephistopheles as being especially philosophical, as being especially sort of national in his way. And this version of the devil is no different. He is a woodsman. He walks around with his a with an axe over his shoulder. He's covered in soot and he's very dirty. Like, he's got the whole American virtue of hard work and, you know, earning one's keep by just doing stuff out in the woods all over him. But he's twisted it. Like, notice the work that he's doing is felling trees. So when he directs Tom to look at Deacon Peabody... Tom looks and he sees one of the great trees, fair and flourishing without, but rotten at the core, and saw that it had been nearly hewn through so that the first high wind was likely to blow it down. On the bark of the tree was scored the name of Deacon Peabody. He now looked round and found most of the tall trees marked with the names of some great men of the colony, and all more or less scored by the axe. The one on which he had been seated, and which had evidently just been hewn down, bore the name of Crowninshield, and he recollected a mighty rich man of that name, who made a vulgar display of wealth, which it was whispered he had acquired by buccaneering. It would seem that each of these trees represents someone in the town, and the devil is working at felling them. Deacon Peabody especially, you'll notice that the tree itself looks good on the outside. It's flourishing, the branches are green, but it's rotten at the core. It is bad within. And notice too that, you know, Old Scratch told us Deacon Peabody be damned, as I flatter himself he will be if he doesn't look more to his own sins and less to his neighbors. Deacon Peabody, the head of the local church, is a hypocrite. He looks good on the outside, he condemns other people's sins, but he is rotten on the inside. He is sinning himself. As the devil says, if he does not look more to his own sins and less to his neighbors. Notice too how quick Irving is about it, like how concise that passage is. How snappy he manages to depict the whole of Deacon Peabody with just this one description of the character, and then the tree as image. And if you aren't entirely sure how this is all playing out, Irving fills it out for you. The, the, the tree that Tom is sitting on, the crown and shield tree, we're immediately told, like as soon as Tom gets back to his home, the first news his wife had to tell him was the sudden death of Absalom crown and shield, the rich buccaneer. It was announced in the papers with the usual flourish that a great man had fallen in Israel. Notice what Irving is saying here. All of these, quote, great men of the town are all being systematically hewed down by the devil. They are hypocrites like Peabody. They are profiteers like Crown and Shield. And it would seem that because the devil has felled the Crown and Shield tree, because it is freshly cut down, that indicates that the man himself is dead. When a guy dies, that's because the devil has finally cut down the tree and claimed it. And notice, too, that the devil has a purpose for all these things. He's just ready for burning, said the black man with a growl of triumph. You see, I am likely to have a good stock of firewood for winter. So the work that Old Scratch is doing is he's cutting down these trees one at a time, burning them for firewood. These are the souls that he is collecting. He is cutting them down and burning them the way that, you know, hellfire and damnation are supposed to work. He's doing the same work that the devil has always done, but with a particularly American twist to it. Um, now, notice, Tom doesn't care. 
Like, he's not especially worried. As much as he sees that, you know, all of his compatriots in the town are getting systematically burned and that Irving is sort of pointing out that the great men of the city are, in fact, all sinners and monsters. Like, even to the point that Irving points out that, you know, the, the newspaper reports a great man has fallen in Israel. Like, they're unaware of the fact that Crown and Shield is, you know, actually a buccaneer, a pirate, a murderer, a thief. Um, they don't care because he's rich and he's famous and he's powerful and therefore they'll pay him homage. Um, Irving is pointing to the hypocrisy just rooted in New England society, how everyone is willing to look the other way for the sake of wealth. And Irving is condemning them for it. Like, notice how much social condemnation Irving is leveling here. He is, le he is criticizing New Englanders for killing Native Americans. He is criticizing New Englanders for endorsing and participating in the slave trade. He is criticizing New Englanders for raising up hypocrites. Um, he is criticizing New Englanders for their miserliness and the person of Tom Walker. Like, all of this is Irving very critically approaching New England society and condemning them on every level for all of the things that they do, for persecuting Quakers and Anabaptists, for, you know, disregarding the, the history of, like, their relationship with the natives. All of that is Irving viciously taking down um, the society that thinks it is so high and mighty. He is criticizing everyone for being a hypocrite. Um, not just Tom and his silly wife. Now, notice the way that this develops, though. Like, at this point, we're pretty much assuming that Tom Walker is going to take the bargain, but he hesitates. Um, so we see he was not prone to let his wife into his confidence, but as this was an uneasy secret, he willingly shared it with her. He's still trying to figure out whether he's going to go for it or not, whether or not he's going to take the devil up on his offer. And all his wife's avarice was awakened at the mention of hidden gold, and she urged her husband to comply with the black man's terms and secure what would make them wealthy for life. However, Tom might have, been, have felt supposed to sell himself to the devil. He was determined not to do so to oblige his wife. So he flatly refused, out of the mere spirit of contradiction. Like, Tom was ready to go. He's ready to sign up. Absolutely, give me the money. I don't care. Take my soul. Take what, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. But then he goes home to his wife, and his wife's like, oh, so you're, you made a deal with the devil, huh? That sounds great. You should totally do that. Like, go back and tell him right now. And Tom's like, no! No, I refuse, because you're dumb, and I hate you. Like, he's being pointlessly, petulantly contradictory here. Just because his wife tells him to do it, he flat out refuses like just to spite her he was gonna do it but now that his wife tells him to do it he refuses um that's their relationship um but because he told her she decides to take matters into her own hands so she apparently carries off the silver um and goes to talk to the devil so you know uh, we see the next evening she set off again for the swamp with her apron heavily laden. Tom waited and waited for her, but in vain. Midnight came, but she did not make her appearance. Morning, noon, night returned, but still she did not come. Tom now grew uneasy for her safety, especially as he found she had carried off in her apron the silver teapot and spoons and every portable article of value. So notice he's getting worried for her, not because of her own sake, but because she's carried off the, the valuables, the silver. 
Notice, too, that we don't get a very detailed account of what happens to the wife. We don't get something concrete. Instead, Irving lapses into this sort of perspective where it is all just storytelling at this point, that it's all just legend. So he says, what her real fate nobody knows, in consequence of so many pretending to know. Again, he's criticizing, you know, society or New England society for gossip at this point, like circulating all of these tall tales with no bound or no grounding in fact. So some say that she got lost in the swamp. Some say that she like took off with the money and just went to Canada or something. Others say that like the devil like tempts her into this quagmire and then drowns her. The story that we do get is the most probable though, is that she doesn't find in fact find the devil and then she disappears um, we never see her again. And in fact, like, Tom goes looking for her because, of course, he wants to get his money back. He wants to get the valuables back. He does, in fact, see her apron stuck up in a tree, where, uh, like, guarded by a vulture. And he's excited because he hopes that he's going to be able to, like, unwrap the apron and find all the valuables inside. But when he, in fact, climbs the tree, he doesn't find the valuables. He just finds a heart and liver tied up in it. Apparently, all that's left of his wife is just these two organs, the heart and the liver, tied up in the apron somehow. It's kind of hard to read into what exactly is going on there. The heart is usually perceived as the seat of the emotions or perhaps the seat of goodness um, at this point in time. The liver is usually understood to have qualities regarding like the passions, the emotions. Um, but it doesn't seem entirely clear, like, if there's some symbolic purpose to the, the heart and the liver. What is clear is that she's gone. Um, the one detail we do get that is, in fact, corroborated by Tom and others is the fact that apparently she and the devil had it out. Um, so notice the next paragraph. Such, according to the most authentic old story, was all that was to be found of Tom's wife. She had probably attempted to deal with the black man as she had been accustomed to deal with her husband. But though a female scold is generally considered a match for the devil, yet in this instance she appears to have had the worst of it. Notice Irving jokes that she can, in fact, match the devil. Like, they fight each other. She must have died game, he says, however, for, from that part that remained unconquered. Indeed, it is said Tom noticed many prints of cloven feet deeply stamped about the tree and several handfuls of hair that looked as if they had been plucked from the coarse black shock of the woodsman. So they fought, and she, like, ripped out his hair and, like, gouged him up, and they, they like, actually had a legit fight of it. Um, part of her survived, the heart and the liver, although all of the other bits of her are apparently missing. Um, what's more, Tom knows this move. Like, he's also had his hair pulled out by his wife. Um, it says Tom knew his wife's prowess by experience. He shrugged his shoulders as he looked at the signs of a fierce clapper clawing. Egad, said he to himself, old Scratch must have had a rough time of it. Like, she gave him hell, is what it comes down to. But then comes, like, my favorite line in the entire story. Tom consoled himself for the loss of his property by the loss of his wife. For he was a little of a philosopher. Um, notice the way that Irving phrases it here. Like, the, this, the irony to this passage. He is unhappy about the loss of his property, but it's okay because he got rid of his wife as well. He consoles himself for the loss of his property by the loss of his wife. He even felt something like gratitude towards the black woodsman, who he considered had done him a kindness. Thank you, old Scratch the Devil, 
for getting rid of my horrible, awful wife, he thinks to himself. She was the worst, and I am so glad to be done with her. Um, but at this point, because of all the delay, Tom is ready to go. He is ready to sell his soul, so he and the devil sit down to dicker and notice that the devil has a job set up lined up for him. Um, by degrees, however, Tom brought him to business and they began to haggle about the terms on which the former was to have the pirate's treasure. There was one condition which need not be mentioned, being generally understood in all cases where the devil grants favors, but there were others about which, though of less importance, he was inflexibly obstinate. He insisted that the money found through his means should be employed in his service. He proposed, therefore, that Tom should employ it in the black traffic, that is to say that he should fit out a slave ship. So the devil says, yes, you're, I'm going to take your soul. That goes without saying. Irving doesn't even bother to mention it. He's like, that one does go without saying. But what's more, he insists that the money you be used to the devil's purposes. And his first suggestion, of course, is the slave trade. Because, again, Irving is absolutely emphasizing here that the slave trade is evil. Of course, it's going to be the first suggestion for Tom to invest his money. But notice that Tom refuses. Tom Walker! The miserly, awful Tom Walker, who is glad that his wife is dead, shuts down the slave trade. Even he is not bad enough to participate in the slave trade. He was bad enough in all conscience, but the devil himself could not tempt him to turn slave dealer. Like, Irving is absolutely, 100%, no question, condemning how awful the slave trade is here. He Even his villainous protagonist here refuses to participate but the devil has a second option finding tom so squeamish on this point he did not insist upon it but proposed instead that he should turn usurer the devil being extremely anxious for the increase of usurers looking upon them as his peculiar people now we got to talk about this one usury is an old english term like it dates back to shakespeare and company um and it re refers to something that you probably take for granted in our society usury is the practice of loaning money at interest and notice this is a sin for irving this is number two after the slave trade. Like the devil says, will you join the slave trade? And even Tom Walker is not bad enough to do that. But then the devil's like, okay, second option, usury. Become a banker, he says. And notice, Tom doesn't have a problem with this, first off. To this, no objections were made, for it was just to Tom's taste. You shall open a broker's shop in Boston next month, said the black man. I'll do it tomorrow, if you wish, said Tom Walker. You shall lend money at 2% a month, says the devil. Egad, I'll charge four, replied Tom Walker. And it's time we had a conversation about this. So... I don't want to get too deep into the whole business of economics. Part of this is largely because Irving is, in fact, descending from Puritan ideals. The Puritans were especially suspicious of usury, the practice of loaning money at interest. All the way back to Aristotle, it was assumed that, like, if you loaned money at interest, there was something unnatural about this, that money should not be able to reproduce. Um, the Christian church had condemned usury for literally centuries. It was, it was condemned as a mortal sin. Um, but it is, of course, so useful that it frequently found its way into European culture anyway. In fact, that's a lot of the reason why anti-Semitism became a thing. 
The Jews have restrictions about loaning money at interest to one another in the Old Testament, but they do not have restrictions about loaning money at interest to Gentiles, to Christians. And as a result, lots of Jewish communities throughout Europe would in fact set up like money lending shops. They would loan money at interest. And since nobody, no Christian should be willing to do this because it was considered a mortal sin, they actually became really important to European economy. Like Christians would go to the Jews to get quick and dirty loans at interest. And that's why the Jews got so poorly thought of. Everybody considered them to be greedy, to be money lenders, to be engaged in this evil practice, which everybody wanted to do. There's something ridiculously hypocritical about the restrictions against uh, usury throughout Europe, to the point that in Shakespeare's day, there was even like this law passed in England where it said that, you know, everyone acknowledged that usury was a mortal sin, but it wasn't illegal. Like, you could still do it. It was fine. Like, your soul was yours to lose. Go for it. Um, I should also notice, though, that Irving has no bones about it. He is condemning it. Like, he considers usury to be evil. And he notices and emphasizes the, the product of usury. The fact that Tom Walker is willing to lend money at interest for the sake of mortgages, for the sake of, you know, like, home loans and stuff, it destroys people. Like, all of these people are wrecked, ruined by Tom Walker because of his predatory loaning practices. But notice, too, what those predatory loaning practices look like here. The devil himself suggests a 2% interest rate. Tom, in his miserliness, jumps it up to 4%. To give you a sense of what we're talking about here, the average mortgage interest rate today is roughly around 2.9 to 3%. And that's pretty good. Like, we're, we're doing all right as far as interest rates right now, thanks especially to the COVID thing. That's low. Like, 3% is considered low. That is between what the devil was suggesting and what Tom Walker the miser was suggesting. But that's just mortgage rates. By contrast, the student loans that you are taking to go to this college... If you were getting the subsidized or direct subsidized or unsubsidized loans, you're probably talking about, again, 2.75%. If you're getting other loans, like graduate loans, like the loans that I've got, you're talking 4 and 5%. Like, more than even Tom Walker, the horrible miser, was concerned. Our loaning practices are so predatory that by Irving's standards, they are unimaginably horrible. But that's not all. If you have a credit card, you're probably looking at something like 16%. Like, 16%! It's four times higher than what the greediest person in Irving's imagination can produce. This is so normal in our culture because it's been so normalized. It has become acceptable. I want to stress that early Christians would not have tolerated this crap. They would have been horrified by it. The idea that we regularly lend money to each other at like 5-6% interest rates, much less credit card 16% interest rates, yeah, that's super predatory. That is viciously predatory. Forget the loan sharks, like we know they're criminals, and yes, they have ridiculously predatory interest rates. The legal interest rates right now would be considered criminal by these, you know, Protestants, by these like second generation Puritans like Irving and his, in his kind. Um, 
notice this is relentlessly evil for Irving. Again, just short of the slave trade itself. Um, Like, as much as we, you know, pride ourselves on being moral individuals as having overcome the, the moral failings of yesteryear. You know, we don't commit genocide against Native Americans, but and we don't, you know, commit crimes against black people the way that we used to, you know, during the slave trade. We are absolutely as guilty of greed as any Puritan and then some. Um, cultural changes are complicated. And the process by which we got to the point where it's acceptable to charge 16% on a credit card involves a lot of cultural normalization of things that would have been considered hideous and awful to people 100, 200 years ago. Um, Keep this in mind. Like, Irving sees problems. Irving is sympathetic to the victims of this kind of lending throughout this story. He would be even more sympathetic to poor people now. Um, He is making claims about how money works here and how it is evil to use money in these ways. And yet we do this all the time. We assume that the economy will not function if we do not do this. Um, We are talking about like huge economic crashes if we stopped charging interest at these ridiculously high standards by Irving's own standard. Um, so enough of that, like, get off my soapbox about social justice and stuff. Just keep it in mind, like, just as much as, you know, cultural assumptions are important, like, to them, it's also important to us. What we assume is normal, they would have considered horrible. Not just in, like, you know, how we deal with sex, though that would also, you know, absolutely horrify the prudish Puritans. Um, but also in how we treat each other. Like, on a very basic level, the things that you take for granted are not taken for granted in other times. And Irving would have seen just day-to-day business as miserly and grotesque. Um, Money and our acceptance of it is a perversion of the 20th and 21st century, I suspect, um, by virtually any other age. Um, So, again, keep that in mind. Back to Tom Walker, though. Notice that he is absolutely true to his word here. Like, he immediately opens up his bank. He's already loaning at 4% interest. No problem. That monster for, you know, charging these exorbitant interest rates. Um, He is absolutely, you know, building his own, you know, wealth and career. But notice, too, that he is taking advantage of people. Like, that's what Irving stresses here. He has this whole long description about how this is this time when Governor Belcher made money particularly scarce and there's all this, you know, chicanery and and shenanigans being perpetrated by the government at this point, ultimately wrecking a whole bunch of people's dreams. They had a bubble and it burst the same way that, you know, we have all of our economic bubbles, um, like the big housing market bubble and the big tech stock bubble in the last 20 or 30 years. Um, They had a big money bubble they printed they print money incorrectly they were you know charging exorbitant rates on on speculations and it all fell through and now there are all these broken poor people hanging around 
And notice, at this propitious time of public distress, did Tom Walker set up as a usurer in Boston. His door was soon thronged by customers. The needy and the adventurous, the gambling speculator, the dreaming land jobber, the thriftless tradesman, the merchant with cracked credit. In short, everyone driven to raise money by desperate means and desperate sacrifices hurried to Tom Walker. And he absolutely takes advantage of them. Like, we see the landowner down on his knees begging for an extension just, you know, another page and a half later. Um, Tom Walker is absolutely relying on their desperation to fuel his fortune. He absolutely charges them these ridiculous, you know, 4% interest rate because they have nowhere else to go, because they have nothing else to turn to. Um, but notice, too, that it doesn't come off that way initially. Thus, Tom was the universal friend of the needy, Irving says, and he acted like a friend in need. That is to say, he always exacted good pay and good security. In proportion to the distress of the applicant was the hardness of his terms. He accumulated bonds and mortgages, gradually squeezed his customers closer and closer, and sent them at length dry as a sponge from his door. He takes them for everything that they're worth. Like... As much as Irving is talking about a guy who's practicing usury, who is basically a trumped-up banker, Tom Walker is being presented here as though he's a con man. Like, the two are the same thing in Irving's imagination. Banking and conning are the same thing. But notice what he does with his money, or rather, what he doesn't do. In this way, he made money hand over hand, became a rich and mighty man, and exalted his cocked hat upon change. He built himself, as usual, a vast house out of ostentation, but left the greater part of it unfinished and unfurnished out of parsimony. So here's Tom making money, raking it in hand over fist. He's got kids treasured. He's got all of the fortunes of all these people he's taking advantage of. He's destroying people's livelihood, taking all their money, and he builds this giant house for himself but doesn't bother to finish it. The vast majority is unfinished, unfurnished, because he doesn't want to spend the money. He wants to show himself off as being rich with his big, ostentatious house, but he doesn't actually want to spend the money to fill it with stuff. He even set up a carriage in the fullness of his vainglory, though he nearly starved the horses which drew it, and as the ungreased wheels groaned and screeched on the axle trees, you would have thought you heard the souls of the poor debtors he was squeezing. Tom Walker is ostentatious. He buys himself a carriage so he can parade around town in his fancy carriage, but he doesn't feed the horses enough, and he doesn't even stoop to greasing the wheels. He refuses to spend the money to take care of it. So instead, it becomes a monument to his miserliness. This is who Tom Walker is. He just wants to accumulate wealth. He wants to cut every corner, cut all of his costs, just pile it up and pile it up and pile it up and do nothing with it. Nothing ever. Like, what's even the point of the wealth at this point? And notice what that Irving is drawing attention to this. What is the point of this wealth, he is saying? If anything, Irving is stressing that money is evil. Like, on a very basic level, and this is kind of a very Puritan attitude, like, as much as the Puritans do, in fact, derive directly or indirectly from John Calvin and his assumptions that we saw, like, with the, the Dutch trading company about how a 
packed bank account was a sign of God's favor, the Puritans very much distrusted making money by any other means than honest work. And you saw their productivity, their prosperity in the work that they did, in the fact that they had a huge harvest, in the fact that, you know, they had happy cattle, um, in the fact that, like, all of their livestock were well-fed. That was prosperity for the Puritans. But here, Tom Walker is the exact opposite. Accumulating wealth for the sake of wealth is vicious in Irving's imagination. Um, he, the fact that he's doing it by, you know, preying on the weak and the desperate just makes him even worse. Um, but notice that this is not the end of Tom's viciousness and horribleness. As Tom waxed old, however, he grew thoughtful. Having secured the good things of this world, he began to feel anxious about those of the next. He thought with regret on the bargain he had made with his black friend and set his wits to work to cheat him out of the conditions. Notice the difference here between Tom Walker and our usual Faust story. You know, Marlowe's Faust just despairs of ever getting out. Like, once he realizes that his soul is doomed and that he's going to hell, he regrets his bargain but doesn't think there's any way to undo it. Goethe's Faust never really makes the bargain, so instead his job is to sort of try and stay two steps ahead of the devil, to never become satisfied. But here, Tom Walker is literally trying to cheat the devil. Notice how less, or how much less powerful the devil actually appears to be in this story. Notice that, you know, for all of Mephistopheles having limitations in our various Faustian bargain stories, here instead the devil is presented as though he is equally powerful as an angry, hateful wife. Um, Tom Walker thinks that he can cheat him by outsmarting him. It's not nearly as omnipotent as, you know, Dante's gigantic, enormous Aunt Satan chewing on the, the bodies of Judas and Brutus and Cassius. We are very far from that image of the devil. Um, in fact, this devil seems local. Like, he's just one of the citizens nearby. He is roughly as powerful, though with some supernatural elements to him, but he can be beaten, he can be outsmarted, or at least he's pretty close to it. Notice that they don't, though. Like, you know, the, the Tom's wife does not get the better of Old Scratch in this story. He definitely wins the fight, and Tom Walker will not escape his bargain. Um, but notice that he thinks that he can. Notice that now all of these bitter, angry, miserly, you know, stubborn old New Englanders are in some cases a match for the devil, or at least think that they are. They think they can overcome him. That will become more important as we go later on in the class. But notice what Tom Walker does. He became, therefore, all of a sudden, a violent churchgoer. He prayed loudly and strenuously as if heaven were to be taken by force of lungs. Indeed, one might always tell when he had sinned most during the week by the clamor of his Sunday devotion. The quiet Christians who had been modestly and steadfastly traveling Zionward were struck with self-reproach at seeing themselves so suddenly outstripped in their career by this new-made convert. Tom was as rigid in religious as in money matters. He was a stern supervisor and censurer of his neighbors, and seemed to think every sin entered up to their account became a credit on his own side of the page. So Tom ultimately decides upon religion. He starts praying loudly and steadfastly in church, and what's more, you'll notice, like Deacon Peabody, he is calling out others for their sins, 
even more violently and aggressively than he is calling out his own. He has become, in short, a hypocrite. And this is what Irving is really getting at here. Here is the root of New England hypocrisy. It is all of these great church-going men, loud in their protestations, pretending to be violently ashamed of their sins and loudly condemning others for their sins. But Tom Walker is a vicious, horrible usurer. He is taking people for every dollar they're worth. He is absolutely cheating and conning people out of their money. He is a terrible, horrible person, and you can absolutely bet that's not what he's apologizing for on Sunday. Those are not the sins that he is crying about. And what's more, the fact that he is accusing others, those steadfastly Zion-word, actual pious people, of being vicious monsters, he's just covering up his own sin. And notice the way that it's described here. Every sin entered up to their account became a credit on his own side of the page. He's going about it all wrong. This is not how piety works. This is not how Christianity works. And Irving stresses this. He stresses it doubly when he ultimately falls to the exact same thing we saw the devil doing earlier. He even talked of the expediency of reviving the persecution of Quakers and Anabaptists. In a word, Tom's zeal became as notorious as his riches. Remember, the devil was the one who was persecuting Quakers and Anabaptists. That was one of the descriptions he made about himself early on in this story. This was something that he does. And when Tom turns to persecuting Quakers and Anabaptists, he is once again just doing more of the devil's work. He is not, in fact, saving himself. He is not, in fact, protecting himself. This is not zeal or piety or Christian behavior. He is a hypocrite. And in his hypocrisy, he is turning to just more of the devil's work. But this time, it looks positive. In fact, everything that Tom is doing looks good. He's making money, and therefore he's respected. He's speaking aloud in church, and is therefore respected. But all of this, all of these actions, all these things that he's doing, are, at the end of the day, devil's work. Destructive, hypocritical. And Irving is calling it out. Irving is calling out every New Englander who has stood up in church to condemn the sins of his neighbor while ignoring his own. Everyone who amassed great riches by destroying other people. They are all horrible sinners, and the devil is waiting to claim them. And notice that that's ultimately what happens to Tom Walker. So he's going around, it says that he's starting to carry a, a, a Bible in his pocket and another like huge desk bible on his desk at, at, at work but the devil catches him unawares like he is talking to this poor sap who he's taken for every last dime and the speculator says you have made so much money out of me and tom says the devil take me if i have made a farthing and he does devil shows up yep you definitely made money off this guy so i'm taking you away now notice what happens to tom though like, yes, he absolutely gets claimed by the devil. Yes, he absolutely, you know, his soul is harvested just like Deacon Peabody's and Crown and Shields. But notice how it manifests. Um, notice that all of his riches, all of the things that he has accumulated, his big, giant, empty house and his carriage and his, you know, chests full of money that he's accumulated, they all immediately disappear. 
The good people of Boston shook their heads and shrugged their shoulders, but had been so much accustomed to witches and goblins and tricks of the devil in all kinds of shapes from the first settlement of the colony that they were not so much horror-struck as might have been expected. Trustees were appointed to take charge of Tom's effects. There was nothing, however, to administer upon. On searching his coffers, all his bonds and mortgages were found reduced to cinders. All of the loans that he gave out disintegrated, burned up. In place of gold and silver, his iron chest was filled with chips and shavings. Notice Tom's chest, all of his money, has now been replaced with wood chips. As though the as though the tree that had represented Tom Walker has now been cut down and the sawdust put in its place. The indication is Tom has been harvested. He has been burned, just as the devil was burning Deacon Peabody and Crown and Shield's wealth for, for fuel before. His soul has been claimed, and that is all that is left of him. In his stable, two skeletons lay in his stable instead of his half-starved horses, and the very next day his great house took fire and was burnt to the ground. There's literally nothing left of him. And that's what Irving wants to emphasize here. All of the wealth, all of the power that Tom Walker had amassed is, at the end of the day, worthless. In two days, it is all gone. House burned down. Mortgages and papers reduced to cinders and ashes. Wealth and iron and silver, iron chests with silver and gold all reduced to wood chips. All of his, his horses and his carriage died. Like, every part of it is disappeared. There is absolutely nothing left. Tom Walker, like Peabody the hypocrite, like Crown and Shield the hypocrite, was a hypocrite himself and is claimed by the devil for his hypocrisy, for the deal that they made and for the riches that he offered, which ultimately did no one any good. Notice how Irving, or what Irving is emphasizing here. Where all of our Faust stories thus far have been emphasizing to some degree the dangers of scholarship, of studying. Marlowe is saying, don't pry into secrets that you don't, that we are not meant to know. Goethe is stressing that all intellectual activity is ultimately worthless and pointless. Here, Irving isn't interested in scholarship. He's interested in greed. He uses the Faust story to instill to instead tell a story about greed, miserliness, wealth, the evil of accumulating money. That's his priority instead, and he uses details to back it up. He sets it in his own hometown and talks about it as though that is the primary evil that he is worried that America is going to end up falling into. This is his cautionary tale. This is what he is afraid all of our citizens will eventually become. So that's very much, again, uh, that same Faust story just altered to his culture, his concerns, his time period, and what he wanted to talk about. And we'll see it happen again as we go on.